Hi and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an assistant professor in the Pauline Jewett Institute of Women's and Gender Studies at Carleton University, unceded Algonquin territory. On today's show, I'm joined by Sun Tui Wen, who uses she, her pronouns, an associate professor at Carleton University, situated in interdisciplinary studies and cross-appointed to the Pauline Jewett Institute of Women's and Gender Studies and the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. I'm excited to speak to them about their work. I think we have to be conscious that when we are doing work in the global south, we are somehow positioned as a colonizer because our research projects, our funding bodies are located in the global north, right? And even though I'm privileged to learn from scholars from the global north, a lot of whom I really appreciate, but then that continued to perpetuate the coloniality of power where we conduct research in the global south. Their life outside of academia. And uh, yoga is, uh, I think, is a very um, you know, important activity for healing. And, um, you know, I, I, I've learned from yoga to get myself a balance uh, and a space where I can find myself. And to ask them how they think disability can save the world. Hi, Twee. Hi, Fadi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so good to have you. I'm so glad we're doing this. And we'll jump right into it. I wanted to ask you about your research, segment one, inside the project, the research, the work, the art, why disability studies? So before I begin, let me start by acknowledging the land upon which we are situated on the traditional and unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation uh, as a racialized settler myself. I am aware that I'm situated on the land that has been and continues to be occupied by the settler colonizers like us, right? So the ongoing occupation of indigenous land, the policing of indigenous bodies and minds, and the recent discovery of the unmarked graves of Indigenous children from residential schools is very, very disturbing, right? And it reminds us that our conversation on disability studies need to engage better with the struggles for decolonization of Indigenous peoples in Canada as well as around the world. So why disability studies? And why do I do research in disability studies? Um, I come from a place from the global south, it's called Hue City. And um, where the term city could be very 
misleading because it somehow, you know, convey a sense of an um, urban space uh, with a relatively well-developed infrastructure. My space is relatively small, it's peaceful, it's relatively traditional with a lot of cultural activities uh, such as playing skite um, um, or, you know, like traditional folklore, etc. It's also a place that is very much associated with the traditional kingship system. So we have a lot of relationships with our family members, our extended family members and others in the communities. Uh, and it's also a place that's um, having uh, a lot of destructions going through the wars with the Americans, with the French, as well as, you know, like, you know, centuries of being colonized by the, the Chinese rulings. Uh, so, you know, that is uh, the context of where I'm coming from. I have asthma that has been my lived experience. I'm also living with some mental health challenges that, um, you know, I feel like it's a part of my engagement with disability. Uh, and also um, the relationship with my family members that um, you know, most of them have uh, either chronic illness or mental disabilities or you know other other forms of um, debilitation uh, that reminds me that disability has been embodied in our lives and it's disability is everywhere uh, you know in our social and cultural context. So I do research uh, in disability studies over the last more than 10 years. Uh, but my current work is focusing on working with women and girls with disabilities in Vietnam, as well as in other Southern contexts. So uh, one of the projects that, um, that we, we were working on and is, um, is coming to the end, that is the Transforming Disability Knowledge Research and Activism. And in that one, we are working with um, the three disadvantaged communities in Vietnam in the north, the center, and the south. So these are the communities that are very, very disadvantaged compared to the other communities in Vietnam. And uh, disabled women and girls in these communities are highly invisible in those spaces as well. Uh, so we worked with these communities and um, you know, co-create knowledge through different forms of knowledge creation, such as self-filming, such as photo voice, such as art making. And uh, we got together in order to shape our knowledge and consciousness on disability and social justice in the global South. So uh, another project that uh, we are working on currently that is called uh, Learning With and From the Global South um, engaging opportunities for engaging young women and girls with disabilities across southern spaces. So that one is built upon the previous project, but it, it, it has a transnational scope in terms of connecting knowledges from the different southern spaces, not only in Vietnam, but also in India and South Africa. And you know we were you know choosing to work with very very disadvantaged communities as well. Uh, so in South Africa, we are working with the KwaZulu Natan uh, communities. So it's uh, relatively um, you know disadvantaged, but it's also very much like embedded within the post-colonial history. 
uh, with the racial appetite and racism, etc. And in India, we are working with um, our colleagues who are disability studies scholars, um, such as Nalini Ghosh. Don't know if you, you know her, but it works on women with disabilities, very poignant. Uh, another person is Nilika Mirrocha, and her work is very poignant on disability and gender in India as well. So, you know, we're seeking to build a, a decolonial space uh, that connects the different forms of knowledge across the different post-colonial contexts. They are all post-colonial societies, but they're very distinctive in terms of their post-colonial histories. So, you know, like one of the work that I, I'm, I'm trying to come up with is the, the idea of decolonial disability studies. Um, so why decolonial? And why is it that disability studies need to, 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 to come to terms with decolonial studies, right? So I think um, that is a very much embedded within the gap of knowledge within Western disability studies itself. So um, a lot of what we've learned, a lot of what we've read has come from uh, disability scholars from the global north. And uh, a lot of knowledges from the southern spaces, from the scholars that I've mentioned, have not been engaged with. Right. So um, there's, um, you know, a um, statement by Leslie Swart. I don't know if you are aware of, you know, his work, but he's a, um, you know, a disability studies scholar from South Africa. And he said that uh, most of the academic writing about disabled people in the global south is written by people from the global north. Some of which, uh, some of them disabled and some are not. So disabled people in the global south, whether written about, or filmed, or photographed, commonly enter the world of the global through the intervention of people in the north. So, the question about you know who's doing disability studies is critical, and you know like how do we engage with the experience of people with disabilities in the global north? Not only through forms of disability theorizing, but also through the lived experience, right? So how do we learn from them, and not necessarily to objectify them? Uh, so that is that continues to be an ongoing lesson that I've learned, and even though I'm coming from the global south. There's a lot of knowledges that I haven't known, and that's the reason why I think it's important to engage with these forms of knowledges. And I think what's really interesting is that you're not just doing this theoretically, right? That you're not just looking at Southern theories and comparing them to like Western theories, but you're in fact on the ground doing this work in communities in Vietnam and like you said, in other parts of the world. I'm wondering if there's any kind of like conflict or tension that comes up, you know, with being someone who, uh, although is, a, you know, maybe an immigrant or is now, you know, in Canada, living in Canada, but still, you know, doing this work um, in, you know, Southern countries and global South countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that is something that I've come up with over and over again. And I think we have to, to be conscious that when we are doing work in the global south, we are somehow positioned as a colonizer because our research project, 
our funding bodies are located in the global north, right? And even though I'm privileged to learn from scholars from the global north, a lot of whom, of whom I really appreciate, but then that continued to perpetuate the coloniality of power where we conduct research in the global south and convey some sense of ideologies um, and values that have been portrayed as truth as you know, the utmost ideals that research should be about, right? Even the idea of human rights, democracy and social justice are very much embedded within the global North ideologies, right? Absolutely. And have we got a chance to listen to the stories from the global South and what, listen to what they have to say, right? So I think, you know, um, that is something that, that, that I feel like you know, in constant tension that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Another thing uh, that is also embedded within the colonial um, structure of power, that is the way that we engage with the disability communities. You know, like there's a lot for us to learn from them. But when we engage with the disability communities there, there's an ongoing process of coloniality that somehow positions them as the you know the knowledge uh, applicant right so they they get a lot of training a lot of like practical knowledge that has been brought to them from the practitioners from the global north so there's a lot of projects on disability and development that uh, that are developed by USAID uh, by many NGOs and some disability rights monitoring organizations from the global north are coming to the south so in some way you know like they already have this kind of knowledge but that they they are positioned in a place that they have to learn from the global north because mm -hmm. funding uh, bodies are situated over there, right? So I think you know, it's really problematic in that way. And so how do we unsettle that relation with power? I think that is the most um, challenging thing that we need to, un to, to tackle. I mean, I think that's like really interesting that there is not only a tension in the fact that you're coming from Canada with potentially Canadian and North American funding, but you're also then in these um, spaces, in these like Global South countries, you know, in Vietnam contesting um, Global North knowledge or conceptualizations of disability that are, you know, further medicalized or further provide like a colonial lens, a erasure of like, you know, indigenous or centuries long explanations of what difference means in those various countries. So there's like almost like you're almost doing two things at once every time you kind of are entering these spaces. Yeah, totally. Thanks for articulating that, Fadi. That's very well said. Well, no, I just I just think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just summarizing what you were saying, because I feel like it's really compelling and really interesting that there is there's a lot of things going on here, right? It's not simply just, uh, it isn't, it, I feel like global disability studies, it isn't just about taking uh, Southern theorists and including them in Northern uh, work, right? Like in work done by, by global North folks, there has to be much more engagement of like actual critical perspectives about how we can participate in the kind of a decolonial process. 
-hmm. I'm wondering what it was like, um, you know, working with young girls and women in Vietnam, uh, personally for you, what are the things that you found out that were surprising? Um, What did you learn? Mm -hmm. I think one of the first things that I realized is that there's not a monolithic understanding about the discourse of disability in the global south, right? People conceptualize their disability very differently. It depends on the space where they come from. It depends on their histories. It depends on the social and cultural and political context where they are situated. So, you know, we still see the lingering discourse of disability as illness. Disability uh, needs cure from the global south. And, you know, like you cannot ignore that because it's coming from the perspective of disabled people themselves. But you have to really make an effort to listen to them and, 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 and understand why is it that they are speaking in that way, right? So there's a long history of, you know, colonialism, the cultural politics of disability, where the nation is building the image of the healthy body politics versus, you know, the representation of disability as, you know, something weak, something dependent, something is very problematic for the the, the healthy body body politic of of the nation state, right? And so in some way that, you know, the disabled women and girls in the global south somehow situated within that social and political context. So we have to be able to interpret that long history in order to understand why is it that people are thinking about it in that way. And then we can see a lot of changes in the way that people are thinking about their disability when they engage in the projects, um, like the projects that I've been doing, but also in others' projects as well. And I think, you know, like the disability rights movement over there have been doing a lot of work in order to transform that traditional perspective about disability as a punishment or as, uh, you know, as a form of illness. And they engage in different forms of of knowledges in order to build their agency and leadership. So um, some of my collaborators are disability rights activists activists um, in the different regions in Vietnam, and they are the leaders in not only their communities, but across the the countries and regions. And they bring up a lot of knowledges that we, even academics, we don't know, or, you know, we need to learn from. So I think, you know, there's a need, as you said, to critically engage with the forms of knowledge that emerge from there in order to build a form that, like, you know, critical engagement uh, with, with, with um, you know, different forms of thinking and understanding about disability discourse in the global south. Another thing that, that uh, I think I mentioned, um, but it's not really clearly uh, described, that is the potential for disabled women and girls to, um, you know, to take on the leadership position. And that's why you know, the current Engage project has focused on um, developing uh, leadership capacities for the communities, but also for the uh, you know, women and girls with the, the disa- uh, disabilities in the global south. And I think, you know, like you can think about leadership in a very, very 
um, you know, authoritarian way, but it could be very, very simple and very creative, very engaging. So one of the things that we did when working with um, the communities is that we invited women and girls um, to portray themselves as leader of the community. Okay, so how do you imagine yourself as leader? And at first it was really difficult for them because you know they, they only see the image of the leaders in the community as male, as able-bodied, as you know, very you know, authoritarian figures. But then how do I imagine myself as leader? So they, they started to imagine my drawing so, you know, each person is coming up with a drawing about themselves and then they write down about, you know, I'm a leader because so they start to think about, okay, I also have these skills. I, you know, I can communicate with people. I can, I can share my ideas with people. I can engage with, uh, you know, the disability communities. So, you know, that is a way of building leadership that's coming from their own experience, their own knowledge. And, you know, that, that knowledge is collective because, um, you know, each person's coming up with a story and they share the stories across the space. And it becomes a form of collective knowledge that I think is, is really powerful for us to come up with another form of leadership that comes from the crowd. I mean, I think, I think that's so great. And I, you know, and there's something about using the word leadership and reclaiming it for like young women and girls. And, and um, there's something about repositioning about what it means to be a leader, who gets to be a leader and kind of doing that also through art practice, I think is so phenomenal. Um, yeah, it just sounds like such a wonderful project. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that is perhaps what Southern theory is, is about. Right. It's not about just about theory. It's not just about, you know, the um, theoretical premises about, you know, what kind of knowledge, but also it's about how do we engage in the, the, the real stories that people have been living and how do we use that in order to reposition the relations of power between the global north, between the global south, and then, you know, like, how do we use that in order to reimagine disability in a very different way? I couldn't have said it better. So let's move on to segment two, the middle or the liminal, and I want to ask you to be, who is your current academic crush? So I guess um, I've read quite a few work, but um, one of the persons that that inspires me to get into disability studies. That is the work of Peng Chung Kim. And her work is very, very um, critical and very important for me to engage with what I now call decolonial disability studies. So she didn't use a term at the time she was writing her book, Curative Violence rehabilitating disability, gender, and sexuality in modern career. But I have used that as uh, a, an entry point in order to engage with what I see as a decolonial approach to disability studies that helps us to engage with knowledge from outside of the Northern space. So I think her work is very poignant uh, in terms of 
theory, but also methodologies and the ways that you know, she positioned herself. Um, another work that uh, I think is very important for me uh, is that it's the work of Karen Sudatik and uh, Sean Gret. And I think, you know, these are one of the, you know, some of the, 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 the disability studies scholars that um, came up with the idea of disability and the global south. And as I, you know, I, I think the term global south um, is, you know, is, is political and it needs to be, you know, teased out with the different layers of knowledge and power. But they are some of the first scholars that reminds us that, you know, the transnational framework of disability rights and disability justice might be problematic because it, 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 it leaves out experience with of people with Agent Orange, uh, people who live with, you know, centuries of colonialism uh, in the global south. So how do we problematize a form of knowledge that have been seen as, uh, you know, like, you know, as a form of like universal knowledge in the global north? And how do we engage with a different, um, you know, ways of knowledge making? Uh, and and how, do we, how do we start to rebuild um, disability studies from there. So I think it's, 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 it's uh, important. And uh, of course, um, you know, the work of Dan Woodley has been very, very helpful for me to think about, you know, the question of human, what does it mean to be human? And, you know, like who's entitled to do disability studies and who's not? And like, you know, like how do we, 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 we you know, we create space for the different forms of disability studies from different space in the North and South to engage with one another. And it's very much like welcoming and engaging with knowledges from the global south to reclaim the space of disability. I love That's so that. great. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about any advice you have for younger academics. Okay, so again, I think we are young academics and uh, <laughs> a part of what we are doing that's true. We are yes. young academics. I don't want to yes, age anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are in entering the form of mentorship all the time, right? And, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like I have a lot to learn from you and other young scholars. So one of the, 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 the forms of learning that I've learned from my other field in, in childhood and, 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 and youth studies is that young people have a lot of initiatives. Uh, and that we need to learn from and listen to, right? Uh, but um, if I can come up with something in order to, um, you know, to provide a suggestion, not necessarily as recommendation, is that, you know, we need to start with something small and, um, you know, we need to do something with that. You know, we can have a lot of, you know, very gradual vision, but we need to start from somewhere. Something is really small, something that we need, we feel passionate about, something that's closest to your heart. So, you know, everybody has something to start with. And you may have, you know, your idea and your project. Uh, something is very, very, you know, very small, but then it could get you into the field and it could build your uh, passion and it kept you, can get you to somewhere. So that is uh, what we need to start with. And then we need to be persistent and focused. 
so sometimes challenges may come along the way. I have a lot of challenges. I have a lot um, to unsettle. And sometimes I need to, to be um, you know, critical of myself as well. So self-critique is something that I've been learning uh, in order to, you know, to, to, to learn about the problematic things that I have come up with. So how, how can I do it another way? How can I do disability studies differently, right? And finally, uh, find out your communities. Your communities, uh, including your local communities, the academic communities, your activist communities, and sometimes academic activists need to be coming together, right? So locate yourself, positioning yourself uh, in the space where you feel like, you know, you are passionate about and together we need to act, right? There's a lot of theories in disability studies already. So how do we connect theory and practice? So I think that is also a point of decolonial disability studies that we need to, to, to make a connection between theory and praxis in order to trouble the hegemonic structure of Western disability studies or Western knowledges and epistemologies. So, um, yeah, it depends on what you see as your long-term vision, but you need to really find your people. That's so great. I'm, I want to move on to something three outside the project, the research, the work, the art. I want to know um, who's the most famous person you've met or um, who is someone that's memorable in your life? Mm -hmm. So I think I'm, I mentioned Ung um, Chung Kim already, but if I may, I am I may tell you, um, you know, one of my experience encountering with her because in my mind, Ng Chung is, uh, you know, one of the so-called famous persons in, in my journey. Uh, so, you know, like I know about Ng Chung for a long time since, uh, you know, I was doing my PhD work and, uh, you know, I was so excited about her work and, you know, wishing to, you know, to encounter her at some moments in my life. And there was a conference in uh, the CDSA conference some, um, some years ago, I believe in, in Toronto. So I was writing to Ng Chung and said, okay, so I recognize that you're coming and can we meet? And uh, she was also very, very excited and welcoming. And so, you know, like we had planned to meet with each other, but we didn't really come up with a plan. Like, where do we meet? So I, on that day I was presenting and I did a very terrible job in terms of time management. Um, so I, you know, like I uh, was able to present, you know, a part of my presentation is not the, the whole thing. And the presentation was very, very um, lengthy. So, you know, like that is like a learning experience for me in terms yeah, of, of like conducting a presentation. And I wish she hadn't come. So uh, when I finished the presentation and people started to leave, um, somebody was behind me and calling me gently, Tui, and I turned back and it was Ng Chung. So it was 
such a, a missed blessing because like, you know, if you, you want to encounter your academic figures, then, you know, you want to share something that's really poignant, right? But then, you know, my, 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 my famous person was coming to one of my uh, presentation that, 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 you know, I was do, not doing that well, but then, you know, like she was, um, really engaging, really loving, and you know, like understanding of the the challenges that I face as a young academic. So I, I think we met, we talked about mentorship before. So in 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 my way, that you know, in my way of thinking, that Ochung is a mentor, and she was um, you know reading my work, and she was providing recommendations, and you know, she challenged me a lot to think about uh, you know the complexity of colonialism, the complexity of engaging with disability communities in the global south. So it's, it's, it's really like, you know, a, an encountering moment that is like a, a kind of misblessing. And we spent the rest of the day wandering uh, across the Young Street in Toronto. So Ryerson University was there. Uh, so, you know, that was a moment that, you know, we start to encounter, you know, uh, you know, a different way of, um, you know, in, of engaging in academic journey. And um, I continue to learn a lot from her work, but you know, that was a, a moment that uh, I recognize, um, you know, it, it, it could stay with me forever. And- um, That's so and, nice. <laughs> yeah, That's I such love a nice it. story and what a memorable day. Like you spent almost the whole day together. Yeah, so I think, you know, we love to, um, to, to learn from our academic uh, friends yeah. and like-minded people. And you know, perhaps that is so um, inspiring that, you know, that, that encouraged me is to continue to come up with new ways of engaging with knowledges in the global South and uh, learning from the colleagues like that. So I wanna know what obscure fact you carry around and you know pull out an awkward conversation mm -hmm. so a couple of days ago i went to facebook and i saw carla rice our colleague um she tried an app called what color is your soul have you tried that out I have not, no. Okay, so that was so funny that, you know, like I, I already know that there's nothing true about that, but I'm curious about how Facebook apps are using the data that we post on Facebook and social media in order to, um, you know, to shape a way of knowing about who we are and yeah. then, you know, how it, it governs our psyche right so i was like quite curious about what it has to say about me so i went on and top tried on and you know what color i uh, i had no and i don't know what it means what color you are assigned <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah uh, that that's good that was surprising to me because uh, it gave me a color that i had never thought that i would have that is black okay what does that mean <laughs> What does that mean? It says that three, you are someone who already faces many problems alone, but still do anything for the loved ones. Aww. And you are strong, independent, and always true to yourself. You are sweet, 
you are not a sweet talker. Okay, so I'm not a sweet talker. If I, I can buy you that truth. <laughs> uh, but your actions prove that you have a very big heart. <laughs> so that was funny. <laughs> I think there's I think there's something to this idea of like, you know, black being a bad color. And obviously that's colonial and racist and all those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And like it being assigned things like strength and um and and also vulnerability and caring and I feel like that's actually kind of it makes sense that you would be assigned that color to me in some ways given our conversation today it's almost decolonial to be assigned that color I love that but let me tell you <laughs> what I did next so I didn't stop there I tried another one because I'm pretty sure that if I'm going to try another one then I'm going to have a different color <laughs> yes you think probably that I'm, I'm true yeah, so I, I tap another one, and the next time that I came up with that was blue. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, like it has some kind of like caring, but also you know you are the kind of slow on us. So, but you could be uh, when you, your anger could be as powerful as a tsunami. So again, so a kind of like a narratives that are told to us by somebody that use our data in order to govern how do we think about who we are, right? So it's, it's again, a kind of, you know, modernist, colonialist kind of mentality that's govern how we situate ourselves and it tends to be very individualized and there's not, not, not such a truth about that. So I yeah. think it's, it's, it's quite funny, um, you know, when we play those games and, you know, we, we, we start to, you know, to shape some kind of knowledge about who we are and that is how the, you know, governmentality is playing out, right? So can you tell us what you're reading now? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm reading Dan Woodley. Actually, I finished uh, his work, uh, his book. That, that is a very tiny and handy book that has a lot to do with the question about human, who's a human who defies who's a human, who's entitled to, you know, to, 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 to be seen as human and who's not. And so what's the question about the future of humanity, for instance. So um, I think that is a very, very useful book to, 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 to be used for, especially for undergrad level. So I think this work is very much, um, you know, a, a useful work that I can use for my students. Um, another work that uh, that is not necessarily new that was uh, the Eung Chung Kim's book about curative violence that I mentioned earlier. So this work could be very useful when we use in order to teach um, students about the transnational aspects of eugenic policies, which um, took place in the 20th century. So Eung Chung was like using both you know, policy analysis and visual analysis and film analysis in order to, you know, to unsettle the coloniality of power through her work, through, you know, her deliberation on the politics of cure. And another book that uh, I, I've, I've just read is called Disability in Americas, the Intersections of Education, Power and Identity. So this book is the start of a decolonial disability studies framework that is edited by Shantan Figuera and Devik Hernandez-Zaka. 
uh, I'm going to read that to you and write them in to you if uh, you like. And so this work is uh, based on the Americas of the South and it draws from the colonial histories from you know, the different spaces in Latin America. And although it's, it has more to focus on, um, you know, on the Americas in the South, you know, we can see that as, um, you, know, a, a, you know, an entry point for us to bring together different forms of knowledge on decoloniality. Can you tell us about a hobby that you enjoy doing or, or something that brings you joy? Mm -hmm. So this morning I was watering my plants you know that you know I have my plants, and I was looking how at how they are growing and how they are breathing and how they are transforming. So I'm thinking about you know like how they are like us, you know, living organisms, right? And they are giving us a, you know a kind of healing and caring that we don't think that plants could do, but they are living beings, right? And um, even though, you know, I'm living in this space, a particular space that is quite, you know, lonely and um, um, not very much like lively activities that are going on right now, but I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm being cared for. And uh, I don't know if, um, your listener can see, but uh, that I have a tomato in front of me. And that is one of my produce that I just took away from my tomato tree this morning. So it's really lovely. And I can see the fruit of the work that I'm doing. So that is something that brings me joy. And another thing that I've shared with you some, you know, some other times that is my yoga. And uh, yoga is, uh, I think, is a very, um, you know, important activity for healing. And, um, you know, I, I, I've learned from yoga to get myself a balance uh, and a space where I can fight myself. And, uh, you know, I can, I can situate myself within my plans, my communities and uh, that put me in a form of existence and coexistence with others and that brings me joy. I love that and congratulations on your your little tomato. I know that's a lot of work to grow uh, you know fruits and vegetables and it's so lovely when you get uh, a little reward like that. So <laughs> yeah we do have a lot of rewards. <laughs> oh wow good. So Finally, like I end every other podcast, I want to ask you, how do you think disability can save the world? Mm -hmm. So I think um, disability can save the world in different ways. First of all, we can use disability as a, sp a space for teaching others about ableism, about colonialism, and other forms of oppressions that continue to perpetuate in our present life. So disability experience can be a space to trouble normalcy. And that has been very much well elaborated on from the work of Tanya Zhikowski, as well as other disability studies scholars. So I think, you know, as um, disability studies educators, we have been using disability as a pedagogical tool in order to teach 
our students and to learn from disability, right? Uh, but disability studies can raise the theoretical theoretical questions about what it means to be human and how do we uh, engage with a different way of conceptualizing the concept of humanity uh, in a way that troubles the normative categories that men or male Western able-bodied and six-gendered uh, category of human being, right? So I think that is a way that, again, we can use as a pedagogical tool in order to, 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 to challenge normativity. And disability studies can be a form of praxis that helps us to engage with our communities, right? So I didn't feel, you know, a lot of you know, a sense of belonging when, you know, I was doing a kind of like Foucauldian um, disability studies where, you know, I just like analyze discourse and power, even though it was really fascinating to me. But when I engaged with my communities across the Southern space, I see my community, I feel belong. And I see that as, um, you know, a start of an opening or a radical opening uh, where we can um, coexist with other you know, communities, with other, you know, individuals as well as, um, you know, living organisms within our process of work making. So I love to, you know, to, to start from that particular point of practice. That's so lovely. We thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you this afternoon. Thank you, Fadi. And I look forward to learning from you more in our conversation and in our teaching practice. Uh, same for me, honestly. Thank you. Okay. Thanks to uh, Dr. Wen for coming on the show today. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitysavestheworld@gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, you can check out my website, fadishinuda.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Fadi Shinuda, and edited by Yasmina Garcia. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Disability Saves the World. <laughs>